hand and give Julie one of her last ovations as she comes and preaches the word. take your seat. I'm not going to promise that I won't cry tonight. There's a mixture of like anointing, a little bit of sadness, a little bit of pregnancy hormones. So that's all in the mix. I'm probably going to cry quite a bit. Well, let me have a look. There we are. How are we doing? Are we all good? Yeah. Awesome. All right. I want to talk to you this evening and ask you this question right at the start. What is the truth worth? What is the truth worth? And I'm going to tell you two stories this evening. Stories about a truth worth living for and stories about a truth worth dying for. And the reason why we're talking about that is because our vision for this year is proclaim and declare. And so we're very conscious that when we proclaim and declare that we're proclaiming and declaring truth. We're not just picking the words that we think are nice and the words that we want to say, but we're picking and we're listening to what God is saying. There's a big difference and you'll hear us talk about this a lot over the year that we don't just choose the things that we want to proclaim and declare, but we listen for what is God saying. The world's very good, and if you're on TikTok at all, or on Facebook, or on any of the social media platforms, you will come across people who talk about getting your vision board together, about thinking about the kind of life you want to live, and then they talk about that you speak it out, and they'll say you need to speak it out every day, and they call it manifesting. And they're not quite wrong on that one, really. <laughs> they're kind of half right. And there's something, they've, they've tapped into the, the truth of it, but it's, it's without power because the source determines the power. And so if you just decide, I'm going to say the words that I want to say, then there's no power to it because it's in, it originates in you. And so you have to make it happen. So when it happens or it doesn't happen, that's on you. But when you listen to what God is saying and you proclaim his words and you declare his truth, well, then all the onus is on God to make it come to pass, which is a good thing because he's able to do that. He's the one that's able to move waters. He's the one that's able to part seas. He's the one that's able to level highways. He's the one that's able to make ways through the wilderness. And so this evening, we have to start off with that thought that every truth that we proclaim and declare is not of our own making. If you do that this year, you're going to be sorely disappointed at the end of the year. You've got to listen to what God is saying to you. Seek the truth, not just our truth, not just your truth. Seek the truth. And that's important. It's really important. We're going to talk about it this evening. Then the stories that I'm going to share with you center around the truth of God's word. As I love the Bible, and it's my last preach for a little while, so I'm like, well, I have to kind of do stuff around the Bible because I just love it so much. And so these stories are around people who gave everything for the Bible, who gave everything for the truth of what is contained in the Bible, people who gave everything for what they saw as the revealed truth of Jesus in the Bible. And if they, if they did that, and it's not true... Well, then they died in vain and they've lived in vain and they've actually been part of the biggest con ever. If what's in the Bible is not true and the truth, then we might as well all go home. You could be doing something better with your Sunday evening. But if it is true, 
if it is the revealed person of Jesus in the Bible and that is the truth, then it's worth giving everything for. It's worth living for. It's worth dying for. And so that's kind of what we're going to center around this evening. That's the foundation that I want to lay because these stories have... They're, so, they're such powerful stories. But if, it, if you haven't got the other side of the coin, which is why these people did what they did and why they lived and died for the truth, not just a truth or their truth, then it's without power. But what they did has eternal significance because they anchored themselves to the truth of who Jesus is. So we're going to pray and then I'm going to poke a little bit to do with culture, and then I'm going to tell two stories. So let's pray this evening. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. We thank you, God, this evening that you say that your word is a light unto our path and a lamp unto our feet. And so this evening, God, I believe the two things you want to do, you want to illuminate some pathways and you want to bring light to some next steps. And so God, I pray that as I speak, the Holy Spirit, you do what only you can do. You bring the words as they need to be directed to every heart, that you convict and challenge, that you make it applicable to every person where we're at and the Holy Spirit help us to know what our next step is by the end of our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right. So if you were in Warner any time during, where are we now? March. That's crazy, isn't it? We're like nearly in April. That's bizarre. If you were anywhere in Warner during February, you would have heard a little bit of what I'm going to say, but most of you weren't. And so I'm going to start with this this evening. And this is the culture poking bit because the Bible is under attack in a very unique way in our culture at the moment. The Bible's always been contended against throughout history since it has been um, in the collected works that we have it now. But it's under siege in a unique way in this moment in history. And I need to talk to this so that you understand why this is important for the stories that are coming later. The philosopher and commentator G.K. Chesterton said in 1926 this, we shall soon be in a world in which a man may be howled down for saying that two and two make four, in which furious party cries will be raised against anybody who says that cows have horns, in which people will persecute the heresy of calling a triangle a three-sided figure, and hang a man for a maddening mob with the news that the grass is green. He was being very prophetic. What he's basically saying is that you can say one thing now and, and the world is like, well, you can't say that. It's just, that's just how the world is. And the world is getting more interesting and more extreme. You only have to turn on the news to see that. And we live in a world with a coined phrase of a post-truth society. That's the era that we live in. There was a time when truth was king, as it were, in the world. But now we're past that. We're in a post-truth society. And this word entered the dictionary in 2016 and defines it as this circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. And if you think a little bit about what you see and what you hear and the experience of your life, you would know that that is true, that something that is truth 
If it doesn't, if it's against somebody's sensibility or what they think to be true, then there's a lot of emotion attached to that. And so it becomes a big, hot, contentious topic. It's interesting that if you're um, 45 or over, so not very many of those people in this room. I had to do 45 because my husband's like 42, so I didn't want to include him in this. So I'm like 45 and over. There you go, babe. 45 and over. You'll, they, they feel the disconnect of this more because they were raised in, in an industrial age and they were raised where in the world, truth was absolute. Science was absolute. Truth was absolute. They were raised after the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. And they are often frequently baffled by what they see in the media coming out of your mouth, what they see online, and they look at each other and go, the world is going crazy. The world is going mad. I don't understand how we, how did we get here? And then, and then they get all pink in the face. And if you're in the UK, we'd call those people gammons because gammon's like a cooked ham that's really pink. And so if you're a man and you're confused and you're angry in the UK, you get called a gammon. That's what happens. But we won't call anybody that. If you're under 45, which is the most of us in the room this evening, there you go, babe, <laughs> included you. <laughs> We've been raised in what is a seismic shift when it comes to truth. We've been raised in a worldview that approaches truth very, very differently than your parents or your grandparents do. And in the 1950s, a philosophy called postmodernism was born. And that group of people looked at truth and the objective truth and the scientific truth that was established at the day. And they said, no, we disagree with that. We reject the idea that a truth can be absolute. And we're now going to view everything in the world through the lens of power structures. We're going to see the church and government and society and anybody that holds any position of power. We're going to see it through this lens of power structures. And our fundamental belief is that if you have power, you want to hold on to it. And you will do anything to hold on to it. That was their worldview in the 1950s. Now, if you're under 45, when your parents were being born in the 1970s, this idea morphed into something called deconstructionism. And that's defined as this, that everything that you want to change is incapable of change. So all the people and the institutions that hold power, they're actually incapable of change because they want to hold on to their power and they're not able to kind of adapt to move and, and do things differently. And so because they're unable to do that, the only way to sort that problem out is to tear things down, is to deconstruct things. You'll hear things like defund the police. That's that sort of idea because the institution in this worldview cannot change itself, and so it, it must be torn down and rebuilt in order to have it be better. What the problem with that is, is that it's moved the center of truth from an external objective thing to an internal subjective thing. Yourself now is the center of truth. What you think, what you feel, how you approach the world is now the highest thing. And anybody can decide what their truth is based on their lived experience. And if you're under 45, you'll have heard that all around in your world. 
that way of thinking that there is no absolute objective truth and that truth is personal and subjective based on your lived experience is pervasive across all media, in the news, every university, every humanities department now basically teaches this. And in 20 to 30 years, it will be at every level of decision-making across the world, particularly in the Western cultures. So because the people who believe this are kind of in their like early 20s and 30s that, that have been raised in this way of thinking. And in 20 to 30 years, they're going to be prime ministers. They're going to be lawmakers. They're going to be Supreme Court judges. They're going to be at every level in society. This way of thinking, this postmodern deconstructionism approach to truth can be summarized as this. If we were going to put it in a phrase, it would be this. I am in charge. What I think and feel is my truth. I don't like being told what to think and do. I told you I was going to poke him. There is no absolute truth, and all truth is subjective. What might be true for you is good for you, but it's not necessarily true for me. The highest goal and the highest ethic in this worldview is kindness to others, which sounds good, but it's not. Kindness is defined as affirming another person's lived experience and their way of knowing the truth. So that's how we're kind to other people, is we... Um, accept the way that they see the world, whether it's true or not, because truth is subjective. And if they feel that it's that way to them, then that's true. And we must accept that to be kind. And because kindness is the highest ethic, truth is now individual, internal, subjective, and not to be imposed on another person. It's rude now in our culture <laughs> to impose your view on somebody else, because that's not very kind. Unless your view is not accepted by yeah. the general population, yeah. in which case then we will all try and impose our view on you and do that in a very unkind way. So there's kind of the caveat in the culture there where they're like, kindness is really kind and we love kindness until we think you're not being kind. Then we're going to be real mean to you, but that's okay because we get to be mean because that's how we think about it. That's the culture that we live in. That's your... If you're under 45 and you've maybe not been raised in a Christian home or you're not intentionally submitting your mind to being renewed by the Word of God, this is naturally what, your, what every message you receive in through every part of your life is training you to think like is this. You're being trained to think like this. And that's okay if you're not a Christian. But when you're a Christian... You, you can't do that because we have to submit our lives and our minds and the way that we think to the Bible and what the Bible reveals is a biblical worldview and ethic. And the problem when we have this worldview is how you approach the Bible. Because you don't know that you have a worldview. I didn't know when I was little and my eyes were terrible. I didn't know that my eyes were terrible. I just thought everybody was blurry, like, <laughs> so everybody couldn't see the board, until my teacher one day was like, Julie, where can you see, and I was like, like here, 
Like I can see here, she went and told my mum and got glasses. And that was a revelation. I was like, wow, the, the world's clear. It has colour. Like, this is what my best friend looks like. I can actually see what you look like now. Because when, you're, when you hold a worldview, you don't know that that's the worldview that you're holding because you're just in it. And if this is your worldview, this is how you will approach the Bible. You'll approach it saying, I am in charge. What I think and feel about what I'm reading is my truth. If it's not kind, then I'm uncomfortable with the implications of what I'm reading. I read the Bible through the lens of power structures. I see the patriarchy. I see all sorts of different things going on in the Bible, and that makes me very uncomfortable, and I need to deconstruct that to make it relevant to how I feel and palatable to how I think because this isn't kind, and so it can't be right. If I'm uncomfortable with what I'm reading or it doesn't ring true for my lived experience, then I can pick and choose it because it's my truth. So I don't need the truth because I need my truth. What's That's important. The truth is internal and subjective depending on what I think, and that's how if you have this worldview, you will by default read the Bible this way. But if you said yes to Jesus and you're a disciple of him, how you approach the Bible has to be different. It cannot be the same. And you have to approach it through a Christian and a biblical worldview. And here's what we mean when we say a Christian and a biblical worldview. Because sometimes we don't define this. And so we're like, well, if this is how you approach the Bible with your worldview, then It's really difficult to know what is a Christian and a biblical worldview. Here it is in in kind of distilled point. The Bible is a God book. It's not just the good ideas of some people who had some thoughts. It is divinely inspired and carries authority because it's from God. The source dictates the power. And so because it's from God, that means it carries supernatural and eternal power with it. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us to realize what is wrong in our lives. That's the bit we don't often like to quote. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right. That's what the Bible says about itself. And if you're thinking, well, you can't quote the Bible to back up the Bible, You totally can, you 100% can, because I can tell you that I'm Julie, and I'm from England, and I'm 37, about to turn 38, and I can tell you about myself, because it's about me, like, I'm telling you about me, and you are not going to question that and go, well, you can't tell me about yourself, that doesn't count, well, no, it does, because I'm Julie, I'm from England, I'm about to turn 38, that's how we do it. Second thing is this. Biblical and Christian worldview is this. We believe that truth is absolute. There is such a thing as absolute truth. It's pre-existent and exists outside of yourself. So something like gravity. Gravity is an absolute truth. You can choose not to believe in gravity. You can have gravity as not my truth. I don't, I don't, gravity's not kind. I don't like gravity. No, that's, but if you, if I jumped off the stage Gravity will work on me nonetheless because it's an existential truth. It's an absolute truth. It is what it is. Third thing is this. We believe that the truth of who God made you to be is discovered 
not by yourself and not just by your friends around you, but in connection with your creator God and the community of believers. You are not your highest authority. If you're a Christian and you love Jesus, you don't get the final say on anything in your life. You are not the highest authority. God is your highest authority. You're not in charge. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19 says this, you are not your own. That's, that's pretty flat and straight. There's no way to chop that a different way. You don't get to be like, oh, well, you know, I'd like to do this. And then, and then God says something different. You're like, well, no, no, no. No, you are not your own. You have to do what your creator, his opinion matters the most. Because truth is not an internal subjective thing. There is external truth, which is what God says about you. And that is most important. Third is this. The Bible means what the Holy Spirit divinely meant it to say through the original authors. I do not have the right to make the Bible say what I want it to say. That's really difficult and particularly difficult for Pentecostals. Baptists are pretty good at this. But us as a, us as a movement, we, 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 we fudge this one sometimes because sometimes we think it's about how I feel about things and, and what God's revealed to me. And, and, and half of that is true. But at the same time, I cannot make the Bible say what it was not meant to say to the original people. We could say it this way, and this sounds odd, but it is true. The Bible is not written to me, but it is written for me. So the Bible, when Paul was writing his letters, he's not thinking about nearly 38-year-old Julie in Brisbane, and he's like, you know, what would Julie really need this Wednesday afternoon? He's, I'm not in his mind. He's, I'm not his intended audience. He's writing to a specific set of people at a specific time in history. And, and you cannot make a verse say what it did not mean to the original hearers of that. Now, the Holy Spirit in some amazing mystery, when you read it, illuminates things to you and helps you to apply it to your life, even though it's not written to you. It is for you. You should read the Bible. You should have verses come alive. You should have things that are like, oh my goodness, I never saw that before. Because that's the Holy Spirit doing his work of illuminating. But it's not, he can't make it say what you want it to say because that's your truth and that's what you're comfortable with and that's what you think is kind and that's how you want to approach it. Last thing is this. When you read the Bible... You have to eat the whole meal. You have to eat the whole meal. You can't pick the nice bits that your mums and grandmas have got, like, embroidered onto, you know, little towels, and they've got them in little fridge magnets, and people post them on nice little things on Facebook, you know, verse of the day. You can't just pick those nice little bits and then leave all the bits that you find uncomfortable, and you're like, I don't really know what to do with this bit. Let's just... Let's just pass on by that book because Lamentations, what is that about? And Ezekiel, I've got no clue. And then Revelation, well, let's just, just leave that one with a giant pole somewhere because who even knows what's going on there? You have to eat the whole meal. You cannot dismiss the hard, the controversial, the culturally unpopular today or difficult parts of the Bible. As a Christian... We believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, the whole Bible. 
not just the bits that are palatable. And we have to embrace and wrestle with the whole Bible. That's what being a Christian is. That's what being a disciple is. That's what it's always been. But now we don't like that because it's not comfortable to us. And this way of approaching the Bible is how Christians and communities of Christians have approached the Bible for millennia. This is how they've come to it. Not that it, whatever is nice and palatable to me and how I like things, I'm going to do it that way. But they approach it that actually the Bible reads us. Like I have to listen to what God is saying and I have to submit my life to it. I have to renew my mind according to what his word says and that we submit our lives and then that changes us. And that matters because if that's how we approach the Bible, it explains some of the willingness and the resolve that you're going to hear about in just a moment and the motivation behind tonight's stories. It matters because the Bible is the revelation of Jesus. It's how we understand who Jesus is, and not just the New Testament, not just the New Testament, the whole Bible. There's a really great kid's Bible called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And if you're not sure about this, literally start there. It's a great place to start because the tagline says, every story whispers his name. And it takes all the Old Testament stories and then shows you how that like reveals Jesus. The whole of the Bible, the whole arc of scripture is about revealing Jesus. And that matters because Jesus changes things and he changes lives and he changes people. But if it's not true, then it's a giant con. And what are we doing? But if it is true, then it's worth giving everything for. It's worth giving everything for and it's worth living differently. It's worth being uncomfortable. It's worth proclaiming and declaring if it's true, if it's the truth. And so I want to ask you some questions this evening as we get into the stories. I want to ask you, what is the truth worth to you? Not your truth, but what is the truth worth to you? What would you be willing to do or not do because of that truth? What would you be willing this year to proclaim and declare no matter what the cost was? What would you do? And I want you, if you've got a physical Bible, you can hold your Bible. If you've got the Bible app on your phone, I want you to get your phone out. This is the only time you're probably going to hear this from the pulpit. I want you to get your phone out. I want you to navigate to the Bible app. I want you to open it up. You can show me. Let me sit lovely. And I want you to hold it in your hand the entire time that I'm telling these two stories. I want you to hold the Word of God in your hand while I'm telling you these next two stories. The first story is an old one, set in 1494, so like super old. Set in England because I've got the mic and I can tell English stories tonight. (laughs) This guy called William Tyndale. He was a clever man. He was born at a time in England where it was illegal to read or have a copy of the scriptures that wasn't in Latin or Greek because that was considered the holy language. And so to have a copy of what you hold in your hand and anything other than Latin or Greek was completely illegal. And people were stoned, people were burned at the stake because their children, they taught their children the Lord's Prayer or the Ten Commandments and their kids had blurted it out and then they'd been found out. And so because that was illegal, the parents were then put to death 
because their kids knew the Lord's Prayer in English, because they knew the Ten Commandments. But William was really clever, much cleverer than any of us in here. He knew seven languages fluently, and he knew how to read ancient Greek and Hebrew. And he studied at Oxford and Cambridge. And so he's a real smart guy. You've got to be really smart to get there. And he became a priest eventually. And because he was able to read Greek and Hebrew, he was able to read the Bible in its original context. And what he read there, he saw a real disconnect between what was being said about God and how you got salvation and how Jesus was open to everybody and all that kind of stuff. He found a big disconnect between what people said the Bible was talking about and what the Bible actually talked about. And he was really influential, like this Pastor Mark, by a Dutch philosopher called Erasmus. There you go, just for Pastor Mark. And Erasmus said this, Christ desires his mysteries to be published abroad as widely as possible. I would that the gospels and the epistles of Paul were translated into all languages of all Christian people, that they might be read and known. Because you could only, when you went to church, you wouldn't be able to have or hold a Bible in your hand or, or see it or do anything with it. You would only know anything from the Bible by what the priest told you. And so, and then often the priest didn't have a great understanding of Greek and Hebrew, which meant they were kind of making it up for a lot of it, which is not great. And so things had gotten quite off track about what the gospel actually was by this point in time. But because William was smart, he knew what the Bible actually said. And he had a passion to bring the word of God to the ordinary people in England. He went to the Bishop of London and said, I'd like to do this as a project. I'd like to um, take the Greek text of the New Testament and I want to translate it into English so that ordinary people can have it. The bishop was like, no, we're not doing that. And so because he'd made his opinions known, and he was a clever guy and well-known, he then became a hunted man, had to escape to Europe, and he traveled all across Europe trying to find a safe place, and he eventually settled in a place called Worms in Germany. <laughs> Great place name. And, um, and it was there that he completed his translation of the New Testament, which uh, the Greek New Testament into English, which is the first book ever translated from Greek into English. He was the first person to do that, any book in the world. So he completes it. And then what he does is a few, like maybe 100 years earlier, the Gutenberg printing press had been invented. And so before, if you were trying to get uh, information out to people, it had to be done by scribes. So somebody would have to sit and literally copy out word for word, letter for letter, what you wanted to say, and then it would be distributed. But the printing press meant that we could like reproduce things kind of really quickly and cheaply. And so Tyndale started producing the New Testament, and then he made them small so that they could be smuggled back into England, and they were called the Pirate Edition, which I love that. It's awesome. And so the the New Testament, for the first time in English, started to filtrate into the UK, into England. So people were able to read it for the very first time in their own language and really hear that actually Jesus is as good as he says he is. That like you, you don't have to pay for your salvation. That, you, that there isn't a thing called purgatory. Like you, can, you, can, you can have direct access to God. You don't have to go through a priest. You, you and Jesus can converse. You and God can talk. He can forgive your sins. That was like, oh my goodness, revolutionary. Nobody had heard about that. People were not pleased, so the bishops of London and the bishops that were around weren't pleased because um, it was going to take some power away from them. 
And so what they did was, is they bought up all the copies that they could find of the New Testament, and then they burned them because that's how much they loved Jesus. So they'd kind of gone off track a little bit. And upon hearing of the burning of all these New Testaments, this is what William said, I expected they would burn them, and I expect they want to burn me too. This may yet happen. Even so, I know I did my duty in translating the New Testament. And what happened was, is that when the bishops were buying up all the New Testaments, all these pirate editions, the merchants who were smuggling the New Testaments into England were actually supporters of William Tyndale. So what they did was they took the money that the bishops had paid for the New Testaments and they just sent it back to William, <laughs> who printed more <laughs> and sent it back. So in, <laughs> the Church of England became like the biggest financier of printing New Testaments without meaning to. So we, we like that fact. That's a nice little salty fact in there. So he's, he's moving around Europe because he's a hunted man. People don't want him alive. And he's eventually betrayed by somebody he thinks is a friend who gains his trust and, and pretends to be his friend, but in actual fact reports his position to the authorities. They arrest him and try him for heresy. And here's what the heresy was. Believing that the common man should have access to the truth that forgiveness of sins was possible through direct access to God, that mercy in the gospel was enough for salvation, and that faith alone justifies. That was illegal. It was illegal to believe that. Everything that you believe, totally illegal to believe, and somebody betrayed him, he was arrested. He was kept um, under house arrest, and in a, well, in a prison, actually, for 18 months, but during that 18 months, he got busy and he started translating the Hebrew Old Testament <laughs> because he was like, oh, great, study break. So he's in, <laughs> he's in uh, prison translating parts of the Old Testament. And during that time, he made friends with the jailer and he actually brought the jailer to faith and the jailer's daughter and the entirety of the jailer's family all became Christians because they saw what a kind of a life that he lived and, and the conviction that he had. On October the 6th, however, he was condemned as a heretic. And he was brought down to the town square and given the chance to recant. They said, William, what you believe about the Bible, the fact that you believe that everybody should have access to it, the fact that you believe that it should be in English, the fact that you believe what it says is the truth. You can just say that you don't believe that anymore and you don't have to die today. And he said no. And what he prayed famously was this, Lord, open the king of England's eyes, because this was like a top-down policy. That's what he prayed. And after he prayed that, he was strangled in front of the crowd, and then he was set on fire and burned at the stake. And what you hold in your hand, what you hold in your hand, the King James Version is 90% of Tyndale's translation. Whenever they came to it, it was so accurate. It's 90%. He did a great job. What you hold in your hand, you sit in the fruit of William's sacrifice. You sit in the fruit of what he was willing to die for. You sit in the fruit of what he was willing to sacrifice for. 
He had a boldness to proclaim and declare that everybody should have free access to this, that you shouldn't just be told from the stage what to believe, but you should be able to read it for yourself and find out what the actual truth is. And he worked to achieve that, and in his death he achieved that. It's not an ordinary book. It's not just a nice book. Nobody's dying because we want to translate Lord of the Rings into other, like... Other languages. Nobody's dying because, you know, the works of Jane Austen are so great, we have to translate them again. Nobody's even dying for any of the other major religions for their texts to be translated. No one's doing that. But even today, people are dying for the truth as revealed in this. After three years after William died at the stake, being burned and strangled, King of England changed his mind, as his kings wants to do. And he said, actually, what we should have is we should have a copy of the completed English translation of the Bible in every church in England. And that happened just three years after he died. Because he died, William found a truth worth dying for. It's about Jesus, one name over everything. He found the truth worth dying for, and he did that because he read the Bible. And then he thought, I shouldn't keep this to myself. Everybody should be able to read this. I'm going to do something about that. And what you hold in your hand is the result of that sacrifice. Second story I want to tell you tonight is this. is the story of Azam, Mahdi, and Yasin. And this is a modern day story. This is in the last 10 to 15 years. And it's set in Somalia, which is... Um, a hotbed for Islamic militants still today. And um, Azam's dad was a pirate warlord. So his dad was high up in, in the pirate warlord world. So when you see oil tankers being kidnapped by Somali pirates, it's probably his dad or one of his friends. And Azam was having interesting dreams at night. A man would come to him at night and say, I am Jesus and I'm real. Didn't really know who Jesus was. So he went to the text of Islam and he read that and found that it does talk about Jesus. And so the, the visions kept coming back and he kept having dreams. And even when he went to the mosque, <laughs> there was Jesus in the mosque, vision of Jesus in the mosque. And he was like, well, this is a bit awkward. Yeah. And like, well, sure, this is supposed to happen. And so he went to his spiritual leader and said, what do I do about these dreams? And his spiritual leader said, you, you ignore them. They're not real. And he said, well, like, nobody else has ever appeared to me, but Jesus is appearing to me, and he's talking to me, and he's telling me that he's the way and the truth and the life, and that, like, I, I, can, I can approach God. And he's like, no, no, you ignore that. Things came to a head when he walked into his house one day, and he had a vision of a cross covered in blood on his bed. And he heard the words that Jesus said to him, my blood is enough for you, Azam. Totally freaked him out, as it would because you're like an Islamic militant. And so you've just seen the cross of Jesus in his bed, seen Jesus saying, my blood is enough, freaked him out. Went and told his mum, and his brother was there. And his brother stormed out the house, went to go find his dad, and his mum looked him dead in the eye and said, I need to leave right this minute. And she, and she kicked him out of the house. And so he had to go and went to a different village because he knew that his brother would have gone and told his dad and that would have been a death sentence for him because you're not allowed to see visions of Jesus. It's not convenient when you live in an Islamic country. 
he thought that he had hidden from his dad and he thought that the situation had settled down. But one day he sees somebody coming towards him and the village was unusually quiet and they're holding a box. And he just walks up to him and he's thinking, oh my goodness, it's going to be a bomb. Um, and the man just puts the box down in front of him and walks away. And it was a box from his father, and inside the box were the dismembered remains of his mother, along with a picture of the two people who killed his mother, who were his two best friends, Mati and Yazin. And his mother had died because she had given him the opportunity to escape, and that was a betrayal for the family. And so she paid the price for that. And so obviously he was devastated, as you would be. But he had to move because he was no longer safe. And so he moved to a different area, 100% Muslim area, as most of the country is. And he started to carefully talk to people about the visions that he'd received of this man called Jesus. He's got, got a church to go to. He's not got church online to log into. He doesn't have a life group. He doesn't have a life group leader to go to. He knows no other Christians. But he starts to talk to people carefully about the vision that he'd had and what he'd seen. And one by one, people in this village start becoming Christians. They have secret meetings. They get found out. And they're publicly executed in the street. The women are raped and then publicly executed. The men are beheaded in the streets to send the message Jesus is not welcome in this village. If you follow Jesus, this is the consequence of what you're doing. And these aren't people who've been Christians two, three, five years. These are people who said yes to Jesus last week, yesterday. And they were killed in the street. They continue to talk to people about what they've seen and the visions and the fact that Jesus loves them and can save them and wants a different life for them. And people continue to come to Jesus and continue to die. They hear that some Christians in Kenya, which is bordering Somalia, might have some Bibles because none of them have got a Bible. They don't know anything that you hold in your hand. Don't have it. They've got, they've got no words of life aside from what Jesus is saying to them in visions and dreams. And so they hear that some Christians in Kenya across the border have got some Bibles that they're willing to give. And so Azam does the only thing that he can do which is he gets smuggled across the border. But the only way to do that, because remember, he's a wanted man and his dad is high up and powerful, is for him to be underneath a body in a coffin that's being transported across the border. Because in their religion, they're not allowed to touch or be near a dead body. And so that's the safest way to get across. So Azam makes a day's worth of journey underneath a decomposing body on top of him. He meets the Christians in Kenya. They give him the Bibles that they've had for years, that are worn, that have got tear stains on them, that they've been reading for years and years and years. And he brings them back with him in, in a coffin again. So he's now smuggling the Bibles back in. And he goes to his little group of people. And they cry and they weep because of what they hold in their hand. Because they're able to have access for the first time to what you probably got three or four of at home, of the versions that you've got on your phone. They, and it's not like 50 years ago, in the last 10 years, in the last 15 years, they're crying because they've got our Bible. They've got two, three Bibles. And they understand that they can't keep it to themselves because there's 
probably other Christians somewhere in Somalia, and they need to get them to them. And so they commit to memorize as much scripture as they can do so that they can then have that with them wherever they go, and then they can pass it on to other people who need it. They're reading verses for the first time like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Verses that say, brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Verses that say, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Imagine hearing that, if that's your story. We read it and we're like, yeah, that's nice. Put it on a little Instagram post. But if your friend just got killed yesterday because they just said yes to Jesus two days before, and the Bible's now telling you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Imagine how you'd hear that differently. So they leave the meeting one night, and Azam is walking down the street, and he sees his two friends, Mahdi and Yasin, who are looking for him. And they freeze in the street because they know that it's Azam, and they're like, oh, my goodness, he's going to kill us because we killed his mother. And so they get ready to defend themselves. And Azam walks up to them and he says to them that he knows that they killed his mother because of the picture and that actually he's come to forgive them. He's been praying for them since the day that he had that picture in the box. He tells them about the visions that he was receiving and he tells them that everything they've done can be forgiven and that the love of Jesus is greater than the sins that they've committed. The people who butchered his mother. That's what he says to them. <laughs> That's not what I would have said. That's what he says to them. They start a journey where they meet with Azam every night because they're so baffled and intrigued and like, how can you do this? This is not how we do things. You should be killing us, but you're not. And Azam disciples them and accepts them into the secret meeting of Christians. I just find that amazing that he would do that and that then he brings them into that meeting and has to explain to everybody, no, it's okay. Yes, these are the guys that killed my mum, but we actually have to believe what it is that we've read. We have to do what it says. And if it's not true, then it's not true. But if it is true, then it's true and we have to live by it. And this is the words. This is a direct quote from Mahdi and Yasin. Azam has shown us that Jesus can forgive the worst of sinners. Moses killed a man and Paul ordered people to their deaths, but they too were forgiven and redirected. This is still hard for us to believe, yet we know it's true. Not subjective truth, not my truth, not what I like, not how I feel, but actually this is the truth. Jesus has forgiven us for being pirates. Killing and stealing was our only way of life. Only Jesus could forgive us, and only Jesus could give Azam the heart to forgive us for what we did to his mum. We are believers now, and there is peace between us. The underground church today in Somalia is about 1,000 people in a country of 16.5 million. And it goes up and down because people get saved, publicly raped and executed on a daily basis. They 
have found a truth worth living for. They've given their life over, knowing that they will likely die one day. These three friends now are leaders in the underground church. They risk their lives to get what you're holding in your hand to new converts, people who just yesterday have said yes to Jesus. And they need to read about people like Paul, who was a religious extremist, killing people, and yet met Jesus and changed his life. They need to hear that story because that's their reality. That's what's actually happening for them and to them. People risk their life proclaiming and declaring that Jesus is Lord and he wants a relationship with everybody. They found a truth worth living for. And what you hold in your hand and what is on your shelf and what we sometimes ignore in the week and what we choose not to pick up because we don't have the time or it's inconvenient or we just don't feel like it in a week. What, that, what you hold in your hand is not just a collection of stories and pithy sayings and nice moral guidance, but it is living and it is active and it is truth and it is life and we need it. And we need it more than we think we need it. We need it more than we think we need it because it's about Jesus and we need him more than we think we need him. John 5, 39 says this. These are the scriptures that testify about me. That's what Jesus said of himself and of the word of God. This is the story of me. This is how you get to know me. This is everything that you need to know about how I am, who I am, what I am, the plan that I have for you. That is what Jesus said. And if you want to know Jesus more, you have to read your Bible more. It's like real easy, like super simple. You want to know Jesus more? Read your Bible more because it's about him. It's about the truth of him. And if we're a Christian, we've given our life over to the truth that is worth living and dying for. As we've got opportunities this year to proclaim and declare, we don't just pick what we want to say. We don't just choose nice things. We don't just do what we think, we come for the truth, the truth. I wonder if the band could join me. The opportunity that we have is to live with a boldness and a conviction and a confession on our lips. And often we have, we have a conviction, but we're missing the confession we're missing the bit that comes off our mouth and into our workplaces and into our friends and into our neighbors. We're missing the confession. We, we are a part of confessional Christianity. That's part of the deal, that we believe in our heart and we confess with our mouth. That's two sides of the same coin. And they have to go together. And we're real good at the conviction bit, but not so great at the confession bit. And that's why we're proclaiming and declaring this year, because confession is important. People around you need Jesus as much as the people in the stories that I've just told you. They're no different. The people that were in Williamstown, yes, they lived a long, long time ago, 
that's fine. The people in Somalia, yes, they're from an entirely different country. You probably never meet them. And they live, you know, a, a different life than we are used to. But before God, they're the same. They're created by God. They need to know about Jesus. Your work friends need to know about Jesus. Your family needs to know about Jesus. Your street needs to know about Jesus. Invite them to Easter. Confess with your mouth. Hand it over. You've said yes to a truth worth living and dying for. That's what you said yes to. And this evening, as we finish, I want to do two things. If you're a Christian in the room, I felt like we needed to do two things. We need to repent and resolve. Because as I've made and crafted this message this week, it's been so challenging. Because I don't live like this, and I want to. And I need to do it differently and I need to change how I approach things and I need to read my Bible more and I need to love Jesus as he's revealed himself through the Bible more. I need to do that differently because that's the truth. It's not my truth, it's the truth. And if I really, really believe that, then it has to change me. It has to do something different. And I have to resolve that I don't just listen to something and be like, oh yeah, that's nice. But I do something about it. And then the other group of people is you're in the room tonight and maybe your friend invited you along or it's the first time you come to our church. You're like, gosh, this is really intense tonight. I promise you it's not always like this. <laughs> but for you, you need to take your next step. And that might be saying yes to Jesus. And this evening, I don't want you to say a casual yes. Easy in, easy out sometimes. This is what it is. It's the truth of what we found. It's the truth of who Jesus is. And either we're gonna go for it wholeheartedly or we're not. Now you might be thinking, I'm just not there, Jules. That's okay. Just take your next step. Your next step might be coming to church just a bit more frequently. You might be like, well, well if what she's saying is really true about this, well, then I actually have to, I have to investigate it seriously. It's worth my time finding out if this is actually what she says it is, if this is the truth and not just a nice truth. And if that's you, then I encourage you, look at it. Ask the questions. Talk to people. Because you have to find out. Because if it's true, then it's worth living and dying for. If it's not, then we're all insane and you've lost nothing anyway. Like, it's all, it's all fine. You just came to a bunch of weirdos in a room and that's all good. But if it is true and you can have a relationship with God and your sins can be forgiven and you can have eternal life and you can live with purpose and you can find out what you're on the planet for and you can have a relationship with the God that made you and created you and knows everything about you, then is that not worth taking a next step and finding out about? Is it not worth just taking a next step and finding out? 